0: Thanks for tuning into Journey. Everyone is welcome at the table. We are a community being shaped by Jesus, experiencing and practicing humility, curiosity, belonging, and generosity. We hope to be a people who embrace the way of Jesus by listening first, speaking second, loving freely, and giving generously. Um, my name is Mike. I want to welcome you to our community. Um, we are a, a, a community of people that really focus and prioritize on the value of hospitality. We think that God extends his hospitality to us in Christ. We receive that hospitality every week by taking the bread and the cup, and then we extend that hospitality to each other. So once a month, we do something called the table, where we practice hospitality with each other. But in December, um, we're not gonna do our official program. Instead, we wanna invite you to have people over to your house to extend your table into your sphere of influence. And we have two kind of corporate expressions of hospitality. We have a a group called uh, Mission 615. We're purchasing gifts for kids. You can pick up uh, tags as you leave. And then we also partner with an organization called Room in the Inn, which is we're going to host in our building uh, tomorrow night uh, some of the homeless of our area. And um, we need people to help extend hospitality to them as well. So uh, you can, like, pay attention to those things as you leave. Both uh, groups are out there with representatives and tables. And, night, like, is it tomorrow night? Yes, but it's all winter. So Susie says, it is tomorrow night, but there needs to be more than my sentence than just tomorrow night. It's all throughout the winter on the third Monday of every month. Perfect. All right, second point. I can feel your energy. Second thing, this is just a bit, bit of family business. I mean, you parents, you know who you are. If you benefit from our children's ministry, we would like to invite you in the most gracious way possible to return that investment and to extend hospitality by either being a substitute teacher or committing for once a month. You're going to get an email joyous, joy, joyously worded, in the spirit of thanksgiving that invites you into that. And because you know, some of you have come to this church. You've been told there's no room for your children. When you're looking forward to having time without them, you know how difficult that can be. So we want to extend hospitality. I thought that was funny. Uh, We want to extend hospitality into our community that way. So just look for that. All right. Today, if you're new to our community, we are in the middle of a series on the book of Revelation. No way to catch up. Even the people who've been here don't understand what's happening. (laughs) This is just the thickest book in the Bible, man. I'm telling you what. And uh, the reason we're going through it is because we want to kind of reclaim it out of the realm of fear. It's been used so ruthlessly to kind of uh, guilt or scare people into the kingdom of Jesus and in, in actuality, the book is intended to, to produce joyful perseverance, um, even if the church should suffer. So, um, we've been going through this—I uh, don't know—over the last couple of months. And today, we want to deal with one of the most um, like overweighted topics of Revelation, and that's the Rapture. Um, if you are not familiar with this, let me introduce you to some vocabulary real quick. I was raised in a theological system. That that made the rapture, the tribulation, and the millennium this sophisticated sort of scheme out of which you could like label and categorize all sorts of theological views. And, and I hope if you've been with us, <coughs> you now recognize that for being the overweightedness that it is. Antichrist isn't in the book. We're gonna suggest this morning that rapture isn't in the book. Uh, And um, tribulation, well, we're going to suggest that's not so much in the book either. So let's introduce the concepts before we do a little bit of dismantling. First, rapture. This is when Jesus appears and gathers up all the believers in Jesus and takes them back into heaven. All right? This is normally thought to happen before something called the tribulation, which is the seven-year reign of the Antichrist. Three-and-a-half of those years are said to be good. The other three-and-a-half are really, really bad. And there are also, there's all sorts of debate about how the rapture and the tribulation relate. Some people think the rapture happens before the tribulation. They're called pre-tribulation, folks. Some people think the rapture happens mid, in the middle of the three-and-a-half years. They're mid-tribulation, folks. Some people think the rapture happens after the seven years. They're post-rapture, folks. And it's glorious. This is what Christians do. This is fantastic. But the rapture and the tribulation are then related to something called the millennium. The millennium. We're going to meet it next week. It's a thousand year period where supposedly Jesus reigns on earth with his people. If you believe the rapture happens before the millennium, you're premillennial. If you believe the rapture happens after the millennium, you're postmillennial. And if you think the rapture has already happened because God is ruling and reigning, or has happened because God is already ruling and reigning in heaven, then you are a millennial. And so this is nuts. And what I want you to see. Uh, I was raised in seminary and I was raised in my Bible churches to believe one particular view of this whole thing. And what I want to do today is not only suggest that I'm not sure these terms are actually in the Bible, but I want to suggest that even if they are, the overweighted emphasis we put on them betrays the fact that we're actually trying to escape the relevance of Revelation for us today and just turn it into a big calendar fest where we know that we're safe. Yeah, we don't need any more, right? Amen. Susie, I want you chiming in on this, all right? you got the microphone. Start. She's preaching next week. So if you're new and you're like, well, when are we going to hear a real preacher? Show up next week. All right. Now, there's a text line you can ask questions. Now, let's be a little playful here, ladies and gentlemen. The rapture, this idea is based on uh, predominantly on a couple of passages not found in Revelation. First one is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, all right? If you read the context of 1 Thessalonians, the church, people are telling this church that Jesus has already come back, and they're freaking out about it. They also have questions about what happens to the dead people when Jesus comes back. So Paul begins his answer thusly. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uh, uninformed about those who sleep in death. So, sleep here is this beautiful Pauline metaphor that death is temporary. We don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. Why? Well, because they were worried about what happens to those who die, so that you do not grieve like the rest of humanity who have no hope. You actually have hope about the people who've died ahead of us. Next, we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that that will happen to those who have already died. Those who have fallen asleep in him, next. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive. So the dead will be taken care of in Christ. Those who are still alive when Jesus returns, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who've fallen asleep. In other words, those who have died will meet Jesus first. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise what? First. So not only are the dead like just dead temporarily, they're actually the honored dignitaries that meet Jesus first. Then we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will live, be with the Lord forever. Now, does it tell us where we're with the Lord? Does it specify? It just says we meet him in the air, but then does does it tell us what happens next? No, it just says we'll be with him forever. Now, I was taught to read that as he comes, we meet him, we all go to heaven together. Correct? That's normally what the rapture is thought to be. I want to suggest that it's that's absolutely the wrong way to read that. It's, it's actually the direction is we meet Jesus in the air and then come to earth together. Now, the reason I'm going to suggest this are three Greek words that are used in this text. And because I now know how to type in Greek. These are the words. Yeah, and you're like, you're showing off. Yeah, yeah, first of all, if you if you're been around, you know I'm great with charts. And then secondly... Greek and charts, who can go wrong? Now, I also kind of want to show my work a little bit here, because we've all been told the rapture is something that you have to believe, and that Jesus takes us into heaven with him, and to hear that maybe that's not the case is kind of a big deal, and I don't want you to just take my word for it, all right? You can do the study yourself. Now, the first phrase, the coming, is actually a word called parousion, parousion, and this word has two different meanings. All right, dial in for just a little bit because this this is going to be really important. The word coming has two different meanings. The first meaning is just the ordinary arrival. Like, hey, prepare for the coming of family on Thanksgiving at three o'clock, right? So that's the word parousia. But there's a second more technical definition that has to do with the the greeting of foreign dignitaries and welcoming them into your city. All right. This word, look at me, look at me. This word is used when Josephus, a Jewish historian, tells a story about the coming of Alexander the Great to Jerusalem in 332 BC. And I'm going to tell you about this. You're going to love it, all right. All right. Alexander the Great is conquering the known world and, and the region, and there was the high, a high priest called Jaddis who refused to honor Alexander with tithes and gifts and offerings during Alexander's first pass. Alexander, having conquered the rest of the region, is now showing up to Jerusalem. Jaddis, assumedly, has a dream that said, you know, the whole city should dress in white and go out to meet Alexander And Escort him back to the city of Jerusalem That event was called the Prussian the coming of Alexander the Great exactly the same word that's used here Right, so the word can mean the coming of Jesus like he's showing up Or it can mean the reception that we're giving Jesus when he shows up and we escort him back to where we just came from How do we know which of those? Uh, interpretation should we choose? Well, the next two Greek words tell us. The next Greek word that we translate, it's literally a verb that just says, we translate it, will be caught up together, that has nothing to do with flying away or escaping. It has to do with being claimed by somebody or being seized by somebody. It has to do with ownership. And then the third word, and this is the one that's most important, the reason we think that the picture given isn't of us going to heaven, but it's us meeting Jesus in the clouds and then coming back to earth is because of this third word here. This is a word that has to do with a a delegation from a city greeting a dignitary and escorting them back to the city. Let's quote some Gene Green. There he is. Gene Green. Every day, guys. Jane Green, and he has aptly pointed out, all right, that this third Greek word is a technical term that described the custom of sending a delegation outside the city to receive a dignitary who was on his way to that town. So here's the picture. Because the text doesn't tell us, we meet him in the air, it just says we're with him forever. How does Revelation end? Where are we with God forever at the end of Revelation. A new creation on earth. So the idea isn't that we get out of here and we jet up to heaven for a while while God punishes everybody else. The idea is we go up and meet him, the royal king, and escort him back to his domain. And that's how the book of Revelation ends with a new creation. All right? Who's Gene Green? Are you kidding me? First of all, Gene Green is a commentator on First Thessalonians, smarter than any of us, brothers and sisters. Secondly, he has a cool name. You call him GG. All right. Thirdly, I, there is no thirdly. I thought he summarized that point really well, so you know I'm not just making it up. So that's the first passage. I just want you to know, to read, we're going back up into heaven, is to read something that's not, it's, first of all, it doesn't say that. It just says, we meet him in the air, and then we're with him forever. So where are we with him? Well, if you just read the rest of the book, we're with him on the earth. But then the Greek words that are used actually have these meanings that are way more sophisticated than just, hey, Jesus, but escorting him back. There'll be a time for questions in a little bit. Second passage that's used to talk about the rapture. Is one found in Matthew. Matthew 24. Now, if you're new to the Bible, you're like, why do Christians talk about all this stuff? Exactly. That's exactly the point we're making. All right. This is not the point of the book of Revelation, and yet many of us raised in the church, this is all we knew about it. All right. The second passage comes from Matthew 24. Dude, I need you to focus on this one. All right. This, we're getting, we're doing some exegesis here, my friend. Exegesis doesn't mean get rid of Jesus, by the way. I just want to be really clear about that. Now, Matthew 24 begins (coughs) with Jesus looking at the temple and saying to his disciples, next, do you see all of these buildings? Truly, I tell you, not one stone will be left on another. Every one of these stones of this magnificent edifice, will be cast down. Now the disciples are like, what? I mean, seriously, the the temple was the place where heaven and earth overlapped. Like this was the dwelling place of the one true God. So as Jesus was sitting there, the disciples are like, hey, can we go back to that point? Tell us when this will happen. What is the sign of your return and the coming of the end of the age? So, or Matthew 24, excuse me, is the discussion that Jesus has with his disciples about when the temple will be destroyed. Now, the problem is he uses end-of-the-world language to describe what's about to happen, and so it gets very confusing and technical. But the whole time, in my view, he's talking about the destruction that's about to come upon Jerusalem. Okay? And there are other reasons for that we just don't have time to get into. But, the rapture part of this starts in verse 36. We have to read this really carefully, Judalyn. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Now, Jesus is about about to give a bunch of parallels between the story of Noah and the story of the destruction of Jerusalem. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up until the day Noah entered the ark. Did people ever think something bad was going to happen in Noah's day? No. They knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and what? Say it louder. Took them all away. So being taken away here is good or bad? Bad. The ones that were left, being left was good, correct? Noah and his family, being left was good. Don't take my gum. And being, come on, daughter. And I have one piece left for sermon breath. All right? You don't want these people being blasted with sermon breath. All right? Secondly, what were we talking about? (laughs) Being taken away in this instance is bad. Being left is good. Correct? I'm not making this up. Do you see this? So then... This is how it will be with the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in a field. One will be taken and the other left. Okay, well, which is the good one? The left one. So being left behind is good. In this instance. Two women will be grinding with a handmill; One will be taken and the other left. The taken one is the bad one. The left one is the good one. And if you're still doubting, Mike, you're just making this stuff up. Let Luke convince you, because Luke adds a little tag to this same passage. I tell you, on that night, Jesus talked about the same event. Two people will be in one bed, one will be taken in the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together, one will be taken in the other left. Where will they be taken, the disciples asked. And then Jesus replies, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. Does that sound like heaven to you? So is being taken good or bad? Bad in this text. So we have two texts that claim to teach us that we're kind of escaping out of here. And there are very smart people who believe this. And they would have answers to all that I'm saying, sure. And I'd have answers for their answers. And we'd have a wonderfully boring two-hour conversation that would feel a lot like this, just as I am monologuing. But <laughs> I just want to throw out that that story is a bit more complicated than what we've been led to believe. And if you're wondering why this matters, if you think that how history is going to unfold means the world is going to get worse and worse and worse, and then we get out of here while God punishes everybody, I've used that explanation to justify not caring for the environment because it's all going to burn, so we just save souls out of here not caring for justice issues because our job is just to save souls and get them out of here, right? To, to, to literally breed fear in God's people about whether or not you'll be left behind. And I just want to suggest, that none, none of that, read Revelation from top to bottom, none of that's in there. You have to come to Revelation with a pre-commitment based on passages like these in order to see it. And so I just want to suggest the picture is a little more glorious. That those who die rise, and those who are alive rise, and that we all say hello to Jesus and escort him back. And that new creation then is installed upon the heavens and the earth. Now you don't have to buy this, obviously, and there's a lot more to say. But if you understand that the role of the church is to endure through suffering rather than escape it, you approach church differently. Would you agree? So let's talk about how Revelation presents the role of the church in Revelation. All right? Because the church isn't just evacuated. The church is persecuted also on earth. Now, are you with me so far? I know. I know. This is is hard stuff, but it's going to get worse. We're going to go to Revelation chapter 11. Now, this is review. I'm so sorry. We get a glimpse of the heavenly throne room that undercuts all Roman propaganda. And then there are these three cycles of judgment. There are seals and trumpets and bowls. And if you remember a beautiful chart that I made, with great attention, the chart suggests, Oh! Oh! the chart suggested that this is narrated. No, keep that up there. Dave, don't don't tease them. Like, <laughs> let him marinate in the chart. The chart suggests that the cycles of judgment that we see in Revelation are all describing the same event three different ways. Why? Because they all end with something called the Day of the Lord. And the Day of the Lord is an archetype moment from the Old Testament that gets pushed forward into other historical instances. This is review, supposedly. Now one of the things that happens during the cycle of judgments, notice the line that says interlude, or the row. There are two times when Revelation tells us that in the cycles of these judgments, no one is coming to repentance. The judgments aren't leading people to repentance. So the question is, how do people come to repentance? And that is answered in chapter 11. All right? Chapter 11. Here we go. John has a vision in the middle of all of these cycles. He says, I was given a reed like a a ruler, and I was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its what? Worshippers. This is an image from Zechariah 2 about God's protection. All right, next but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it, because it has been given over to the Gentiles. Now, some people think we're literally talking about the city of Jerusalem, but there are reasons why we're not. We're actually talking about how the church is going to witness to the nations, but we'll get there in a second. The Gentiles will trample on the temple, on the holy city, for 42 months. Now, 42 months, 1260 days, and times, time, and half a time, three and a half years, they're all saying the exact same number. That's why these numbers aren't literal. They're figurative numbers. That just means temporarily. I will appoint two witnesses. I was always taught that there are literally two witnesses, Moses and Elijah, who will stand in the actual city of Jerusalem. And they will prophesy for 1260 days, 42 months, clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two what? Okay, now, just a question. What are lampstands? Churches. They've been churches the whole way. So I'm not sure we're talking about two individuals in a literal city. I think we're talking about the role of the church. And why two? Because every matter in the Old Testament has to be established by two witnesses. So the picture I think we're getting is of the church witnessing to the Gentiles, while the Gentiles persecute God's people. Okay, and if you're like, I'm not sure I buy that, you're not alone. But secondly, if anyone tries to harm them, fire comes out from their mouths and devours their enemies. Of course, we're speaking hyperbolically. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die cool. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain. What Old Testament prophet did that? Anybody? Elijah? Perfect. And they have the power to turn water into blood and strike the earth with every kind of plague. Who did that in the Old Testament? That's Moses. So whatever these two lampstands are doing, they're they're in the spirit of Moses and Elijah. When they have finished testifying, and prophesying to the nations. I know this is fascinating. The beast that comes from the abyss will attack them, overpower them, and kill them. Now, what are beasts? Nations. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city. Well, what great city is that? Which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt. What? So are we talking about a literal city? No, we're talking about... Some sort of figurative Sodom-Egypt-Jerusalem combo. I have no idea. But the image is complex enough that I don't think it's like literally two people standing in the temple getting persecuted. I think it's the church, the lamp stands in front of the nations. (laughs) Oh, well, okay. We have no choice, but through. We have no choice. For three and a half days. Some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. They will shame them. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because the two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. Next. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God enters them. They stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up. And they went up in heaven in a cloud. So that's what it looks like to be raptured. They went up to heaven in a cloud. At the very hour, of course, there was a severe earthquake, a tenth of the city collapsed, 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified. But notice what they did. What did they do here? They gave glory to the God of heaven. Now, regardless of whether you're with me on the details, this is the only instance we get of the nations glorifying God in the midst of the judgment. And it comes because of the martyrdom and the faithful witness of these two prophetic communities, these lampstands. So the idea, (laughs) believe it or not, is that where judgment doesn't bring the nation to repentance, the faithful witness of the church does. So what is the role of the church? Well, first point, The church doesn't get out of suffering. The church endures suffering. Second point, it's their Jesus-like endurance through suffering that is a compelling witness to the nations. Are you with me? Now, man, we can talk about all the details there, and they're so complex. I know this is so hard, you guys. I really do. But I don't want to shy away from it either. But I think that's the gist of what it's getting at, particularly when you look at how the visions are aligned. And if that's true, then we have two pieces of information that we need to wrestle with. first one is, I don't think we can just simply say that the role of the church is to just give people fire insurance because it's the Titanic's going down and God doesn't care about what happens to creation. I think we do have to think about issues like justice. We do have to think about issues like creation care. I don't think those are woke, liberal issues. I think God was concerned about those from page one. And so, so part of the reason why your view of the rapture matters is if you think history is just going to get worse and the job of the church is to get out of here, then you're going to live in a certain way and believe certain things. If you think the role of the church is to faithfully endure when it's mocked and misunderstood and sometimes persecuted, then you're going to do church and understand this a little differently. Are you with me on this point? But the second point, then, follows from the first, and it's simply this. How does the church provide a faithful witness in the book of Revelation? Think about it. For those of you that have been here throughout this and endured this, (laughs) how has Jesus conquered? How How does he win? Susie Lind, fantastic. The lamb wins because he's a slain lamb, right? Representing he was sacrificed for his enemies. He was sacrificed for the sins of the world. How does his church conquer? The same way. Exactly Jesus Jesus and Susie are quoting Revelation 12. That the people of God conquer Through the word of their testimony, and the fact that they didn't even love their lives, and were willing to die for the sake of their testimony. Are you with me on this? So when we look at, yeah, some of you are like, nope, not at all. So when we ask the question, what is the role of the church in the midst of the world, one of the things Revelation is going to say is that no matter how bad the persecution gets, we're never allowed. The church never fights in the book of Revelation. It, it never coerces. It never manipulates. All it does is it patiently and faithfully witnesses to the reality and lordship of Jesus of Nazareth, and they endure suffering. That's the church. In America? Does that happen what do you think? Ellen. Yes, exactly. Is, do, is that how we understand church in America? No. No. I mean, I love what Tim said. The son of suffering isn't something we normally say hallelujah to. The goal of Christianity is to keep us from suffering in America. Right? That's why all of our best-seller, bestseller lists are like, how to be more blessed, even though we're the most blessed country in the face of the planet ever. And no wonder then we would have a theology that says, yeah, we get out of suffering. Suffering is for all the pagans. Well, in Revelation, it's the church that suffers beyond anybody else. That's so good. What else speaks to this? Like, what other questions do you have? Or what else is jumping out at you? That's a hard sell. (laughs) Yes! Why? (laughs) Susie can we get a microphone over here? I know, you were, yeah, you were amening. Can you say that again? Yes, 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 yes. It's a hard sell, she said. Yeah, it's a hard sell, right? We're meant to like recruit and get all the, you know, make Christians, make more Christians, and yeah, I guess my marketing brain is like, (laughs) Yes! How How do you sell suffering? Oh, that's so good! So good! You're a genius and thank God for your marketing brain. Imagine if you're the Apostle Paul and you're selling people on the ministry of Jesus. Yep, I was killing Christians and then literally got floored blind for three and a half days. I get restored and then I'm gonna be put to death you know, close, like almost several times, then ultimately martyred for my faith. Or Peter, yep, deny Jesus, get restored, going to be crucified upside down. Like, what's the pitch? See, and the American church, and I'm going to go off, because I'm guilty of this, all right? I got Mega Church Mike lurking in my heart. And Mega Church Mike says, yes, the goal is to present the most beautiful portrait of the Christian life imaginable. So here's how Jesus makes you a better husband, or wife, or parent, or business person. And he certainly does, but he does it in the way that we, he does not do it in the way that we think. He does it by stripping us of us, right, and replacing it with him, which is a very painful exercise. But that is why very often in churches we'll like, hey guys, come to our service, and Like, uh, you can have a raffle. I mean, churches have done this. A raffle for a car. If you put, I mean, like, or health and wealth, promises, or whatever it is. Right? Because we feel like Jesus isn't enough. And so the New Testament, the reward of following Jesus is Jesus. And if you don't think he's reward enough, then this isn't going to be a joyful exercise for you. That's why Jesus never coerced or manipulated. He never took focus groups or bribed. It was just like, here's the kingdom of God in its weird upside down form. Do you want to be a part of it? And people said no. And he let them walk away. Or if the crowds were too big, he would give them a hard teaching. Now he's not doing that because he doesn't love people, but he's doing that because he's clarifying what exactly you're saying yes to. And so we do such harm when we present the gospel in consumeristic terms. There's a hole in your heart. Jesus will fill it. You'll be happier. It's a God-shaped hole. Yes, it's a God-shaped hole. And it's like, I didn't get happier when I first started following Jesus. I got more miserable. Because now I had to worry about stuff I always just took for granted. So you've just nailed why it is that we make revelation about rapture, millennium, and getting out of the tribulation, rather than what does it mean to be faithful when people misunderstand us, mock us, when others are being put to death, and we just sort of sit fat and happy and argue about, you know, at what point do we get out of here? It's so profound. Thank you. Are we doing questions now? Yes. Okay, because this is actually this goes well with what you just said. If rapture and tribulation was not actually mentioned in the Bible, how and when did it become such a large part of, of and a teaching of Christianity? Oh, so good. First of all, um, it's a teaching of American Christianity. It's not, only as American Christianity spread was it embraced. Secondly, it's recent. It's 1830s. A guy named John Darby, Um, popularized a system called premillennial dispensationalism that got codified into something called the Schofield Reference Bible, which was the first study Bible and most universally available study Bible of its time. And when you're reading a study Bible, it's sometimes hard intellectually to justify, well, here's the text and here are the notes that tell me what the text means. And you think both are inspired. Even though you wouldn't say that, you'd say, oh, well, this person's helpfully describing this. And then thirdly, there are certain assumptions in the book of Daniel that kind of lead you to look for time clues in Revelation that we've, uh, we haven't fully dealt with, but you, there's, a, what, there's a way of interpreting Daniel where you're counting, and then you see the numbers in Revelation as fulfillments of the counting you do in Daniel. So that's the reason. Um, I just think, at some point, and every interpretation does this, it gets enshrined as the only way to understand the Bible. And I think that sometimes, not in all things, right, we believe in the deity of Jesus, we believe in the exclusiveness of the God, I mean, we believe the core. But some of the things get enshrined with the same authority that only God's Word should have. And I think it's a healthy thing when the church at times goes, hey, does this really line up with how the original audience would have understood this? So the people who are believing the rapture, tribulation story, there's no malice there. Right? That's, that, like, there are smart people who hold this. Absolutely. Some of you do. Great. That's not the point. The point is, is the, is the work of revelation in the body of Christ a work of fear or a work of hope? We think the fruit of the study of the book should be hopeful. And if it's not, then somewhere we've missed how it is to be understood rightly. That's a great question. A couple more. Um, well, this person's asking, could you say more about what is meant by meeting him in the air? Okay, so, um, yes. Uh, so when we hear air, what do we think? Right, sky. When, the, when, the, when Greeks hear air, they think authority. So Satan, in, um, in Paul's writings, is called the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians. The air was the realm of authority over the earth. It's where the spirit beings all lived. So when we meet Jesus in the realm of the air, and then you combine that with the word to meet, and then we're caught up, meaning he's claiming us, it just means Jesus is coming back as the authority over the earth and vindicating all of those who died bearing witness to him and who are still alive bearing witness to him. So air is not the realm of meeting, it's the authority of meeting. It's the way that Jesus establishes. So when Jesus in the Gospels will say things like, hey, I'm coming in the clouds, those are all references to him coming in authority. Does that make sense? So the air um, isn't just a random like, he's just going to meet us in the sky, but it's he meets us in the realm of authority. He's reclaiming what was his. Because now, according to Paul, The prince of the power of the air is at work in the world. So when Jesus returns and we meet him in the air, what's that saying? That Jesus is reclaiming what's his. Anywho, that's how I would understand it. Okay, last. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. I thought you said something else. You guys are awesome. What's up, Chris? Hey, welcome back. Thanks. You're welcome. Oh, I'm sorry. I I do. Um, I'm trying to think of how to. Yep, all of us. Right. If Revelation is not a predictive text, correct. Okay, and we can't predict that we're going to fly away. Um, can we not also predict that like Jesus is going to come to Earth in the future and be with us? Like it doesn't work both ways. We can't. Like that has to be non-predictive as well. Does this make sense? Yeah. So like, the the if we're in T-writing, which is kind of what you're doing, like a new heaven, new earth, so there's reason to take care of all these things now. Right. Um, Like, we can't predict that any more than we could predict... Correct! Anything else? Yes! Okay. Remember, Jesus tells us to get out of the predicting... So... Nope! What's the point? Jesus tells us to get out of the predicting business altogether. So... What are we speak? Okay, great question. All right. First, let's establish. And we talked about this in an earlier um, sermon. And I know you you remember all the sermons and how they fit together beautifully. Um, Of course, I don't remember all the sermons. But one of the things we did talk about is how Jesus consistently warns people not to try to figure it out. Multiple times he will say things like, You don't know. The Son of Man doesn't know. Only the Father knows. Or in the book of Acts, they ask him directly, well, when are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus says, it's not for you to know. And yet we've built cottage industries out of trying to know. So correct. The fact that he's coming back is established. The how and when? No idea. So how do we live in the meantime? Oh, that's the question Revelation answers. Go ahead and put up Revelation 13, Dave. You knew it. In the middle of the persecution, next slide, let's just go straight to 10. Next. This calls for what? And? So in the middle of this graphic picture of the church being persecuted, what's it call for? Patient endurance. And doesn't that feel like exactly the slog that we're in? Right. The world just keeps doing what it's doing. We just had another election cycle. Love the political ads. It's amazing. We're very happy. Right. I mean, we've got corruption everywhere. I mean, it's just like, what? And it's so easy to sit in despair and cynicism, and to somehow think politics is going to solve it. Economics is going to solve it. Military power is going to solve it. We're the people that are like, nope, we don't know when, we don't know how, but new creation is coming. And according to Paul, if anyone is in Christ, new creation is here. And so we are the taste of what new creation brings. How? Well, in a world that builds hierarchies, we're in the world that flattens them. We're the people that flatten them. We're the people that practice joyful noncompliance and yet love our enemies. We're the people that see generosity as far better than greed. We're the people that witness to the slain Messiah by being willing to be martyred ourselves. So the Bible's word for that is patient endurance. We don't, we're not violent. We're not coercive. We're not manipulative. We do nothing unless we saw Jesus doing it. And in that way, we testify to the nations that he is Lord. That's the picture. And so, is this the end of days? Absolutely. It's been the end of days ever since Jesus left the first time. And if you read the end of, I think it's 1 Peter, the the church Peter's addressing to, they're like, well, how, where is he? They were asking this 40 years after he left, let alone, here we are 2,000 years later. So, amen. This calls for patient endurance, and that doesn't sell. So part of what we do, and part of the reason Thank you for asking that man. Part of the reason why we take the Lord's Supper every week is because it's the job description of the church as well as the basis from which we receive salvation from God, right? It pictures the sacrifice of Christ, that his body was broken, his blood was poured out, for, and his enemies, even while they were crucifying him. We then become the people who not only receive that, but then channel that into the world. So instead of demonizing and labeling and hating, right, we're people who practice enemy love. Instead of being, when we're persecuted, instead of fighting back, we bless those who persecute persecutors. And if you're like, that sounds awful. Yes, this is how Jesus won, and this is how the church wins. And if that doesn't feel like the church to you, then that I would suggest that we've missed it entirely. So the point of Revelation is to call us into that posture, even if we're misunderstood, even if we're attacked, even if we're marginalized, even if we're not winning, quote-unquote, some culture war. So that'll preach. And that's what taking the, the, the bread and the cup symbolizes. It's not just, hey, Jesus, thank you for my salvation. Hallelujah for that. But it's taking the bread and the cup and saying, Jesus, I want to model my life after this way of living. Are you with me? Now, standard disclaimers. You don't have to buy this. Please research it yourself. The goal is to make the text weird, and in Revelation, it does it just fine by itself. It doesn't even need our help to do it. Right? We're not some authoritarian place where it says you've got to just believe this way, and there's no other way to believe it. Not at all. However you believe it, the result should be joy and hope. And that's what we're going after. So, as the band comes up, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. We're going to take it a little differently today, just because there's a solidarity in what we're communicating. So if you would, go to the stations around the room. If you want to write down a prayer request, there are pieces of paper to do that. But then would you take either a cup or dip some bread in the juice, and would you bring it back to your seat and hold it? Say it back to me. Hold it. Don't take it. I mean, if you do, Jesus loves you. No problem. But we're going to take it together. So, Chris, we're going to go. And what are we going to do? We're going to hold it, guys. All right? God bless you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, mighty God, may we wrestle with these ancient words in ways that are faithful to their intention. And may we be a community that embodies the love, the words, the actions of Jesus of Nazareth. And may we be a counter-narrative to the patterns of this world. And we just begin today, again, by saying yes. If we say yes to you through the bread and the cup, we say yes to you through not only our participation in it, but in saying yes to what it means for the way that we're to live. So now, God, as we approach your table, give us grace. And as we hold on to the elements, he said, not to Jesus, but to the church. As we hold on to the elements, Lord, may we see ourselves as a corporate body called in these ways.